Hello, I'm James Hurst and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big stories in defence and international news. This week, the whole world holds its breath as the US gets ready to choose its next president. We have never had a sitting president who has refused to accept the outcome of an election. Even after three and a half years of the chaos that's often accompanied Washington, would be unprecedented for all of us. Does this week's SBS raid on an oil tanker in the channel suggest the migrant crisis is getting even worse? How the coronavirus pandemic's impacted Gurkha recruitment? There'll be no new applicants for selection this year, but the quality level of those potential recruits that we can call forward is exceptionally high. Plus, how to channel your inner spy and fend off fake news and the Speaker of the House of Commons on how politicians need to learn more about the armed forces. That great advertisement to say to people, I serve my country, but I also serve my community. It's four years since the UK and the rest of the world woke to the surprise and to many shock news that Donald Trump had been elected as US president. This time next week, we should in theory, know whether he's pulled off another surprise victory. The current polling suggests his rival, Joe Biden, is far ahead. But in 2016, the polls were defied. While the campaign has become a referendum on Trump's presidency and his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, the two candidates have clashed on their attitudes to the military and threats from overseas, including those posed by Russia. I don't understand why this president is unwilling to take on Putin when he's actually paying bounties to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan, when he's engaged in activities that are trying to destabilize all of NATO. There has been nobody tougher than Russia with, between the sanctions, nobody tougher than me on Russia. Between the sanctions, between all of what I've done with NATO, you know, I've got the NATO countries to put up an extra $130 billion, going to $420 billion a year. Traditional thinking says Republican candidates can often count on solid support from America's military community. That might not be the case this time, according to Dr Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations at University College London. The latest polls that we've seen there actually show a slight edge for Biden over Trump, about 41% to 37%. This is particularly notable because in the 2016 election, Trump had a two to one lead over Hillary Clinton. So definitely a shift there for active military. The momentum that that voting block brings to a candidate is very important. And also this is a demographic that tends to be very reliable and enthusiastic voters. So it's, it's usually one that, that candidates can count on. It's a significant number of voters as well. If you include reservists, there are more than 2 million US servicemen and women and nearly 20 million veterans. One thing that many will agree on is Donald Trump has been a disruptor to his opponents. That's led to accusations that he has harmed vital international alliances, not least NATO. But Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and American Studies at Birmingham University, told me earlier... All that is unlikely to cut through with U.S. voters. I don't think it does this year. I mean, I, I think it's always been the case in the words of James Carville, the, the key advisor to Bill Clinton in 1992. It's the economy, stupid. Well, on top of that, it's not just the economy. It's a pandemic that's killed almost 230,000 Americans and led to a 10 percent contraction in that economy 
in the second quarter of this year. Americans tend to go with their pocketbooks, their homes, their kids' educations, and now on top of that, health care. That said, I do think that beyond the immediate election, you have got a very, very serious issue here come after November 3rd, and that is, do you have stability in the way that your executive works with your military in terms of planning, in terms of policy, and in terms of operations? We haven't had that stability in the last three years. I'm not saying that a Biden administration would come in and immediately repair that, but I do think the way that Joe Biden conducts business, the way that he conducted it during the Obama administration for eight years, is more of a blueprint for how you try to work with your military than what we've had in the last three years under the current occupant of the White House. America's allies and, and NATO have not had stability over the last four years, or certainly not predictability. What would another four years of Donald Trump mean for NATO and the UK? And, and how would that be different under Joe Biden? Well, leaving aside the damage possibly to security relationships which with the UK, because it's in a special position regarding Brexit, I think for continental Europe, another four years of Trump, it's never going to completely disrupt the alliance. That's based on institutions, including militaries, including intelligence services. But it just disrupts business on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the one thing that you want in the military sector and that you want in uh, diplomacy is you want to know the rules of the game. You want to know the rules of the game with your adversaries. You want to know the rules of the game with your allies. You want to know the rules of the game with your institutions. Donald Trump doesn't play by the rules of that game. If the Trump presidency has harmed America's global standing, how long will it take to reverse that if we were to have a different president at the start of next year? It takes time to damage an alliance, and it takes time, probably even more time, to repair it. There are a lot of detailed issues that have been deferred effectively with NATO over the past two, three years because of what's happened. The first thing will be to set a new tone. And that is, no one leads, no one follows, no one orders, no one insults. So there's going to have to be that open communication around the table. If that is established, then that's a start. And that's something that I think Biden, and importantly, an administration is not just a president. All the people around Biden, all the secretaries of state, the secretary of defense, all the military commanders, all of them can bring that to the table fairly soon after January 2021. Britain, both under Theresa May and and Boris Johnson, have tried to get close to the Trump White House. Would that make relations with Biden's team tricky if if they are in charge next January? I mean, I think everybody knows, if you're the British government, that whatever US government you're dealing with, you've got to play the cards that you've been dealt and you've got to work with it. I think there's a specific with the UK government which is that Boris Johnson and his inner circle have been very close to Donald Trump and his inner circle since 2016. And Trump's inner circle even helped support Boris Johnson and got him into number 10. That said, I, I still think, fine, Boris Johnson is a politician. He'll try to make, you know, establish good relations with the American administration. The wild card issue, in fact, it's not a wild card. It's, it's actually there in the middle is the Johnson government's withdrawal from the withdrawal agreement, if that makes sense, with the EU, because that put the status of the Ireland border in in jeopardy. Democratic and Republican congressmen across the board, as well as Joe Biden, have said, no secure Ireland, no U.S.-U.K. trade deal, and no U.S.-U.K. trade deal has knock-on effects in terms of U.S.-U.K. security relations. Let's finish back in the U.S. itself. What happens if this is a disputed result, because it looks like being a more complicated vote than we've 
seen normally? We don't know. We walk like in one of those bad Hollywood feature films into the unknown outside the spacecraft, and we don't know if we're going to get back because we have never had a sitting president who has refused to accept the outcome of an election. We certainly have never had a sitting president say us for weeks and months in advance, I may not accept this and spread the lie that mail-in ballots are fraudulent because he's going to try to get them thrown out. Donald Trump, in part, wanted a new Supreme Court justice who has been confirmed now, Amy Coney Barrett, to protect his back if he does this. So unless this is a Biden landslide, Donald Trump will try to cut the vote short, say that he's the winner or that he's been cheated out of this, take this into the courts. And we now enter a period of limbo, which even after three and a half years of the chaos that's often accompanied Washington, would be unprecedented for all of us. Professor Scott Lucas from Birmingham University. Let's bring in, as always, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, that is a potential dystopian film scenario that you might have a Biden narrow win and then President Trump refusing to accept it. And there was an academic study a few months ago claiming if that happened, it could end up with the US military being ordered to remove him from the White House. Is that realistic? Who would order the military to remove him? There's a, there's a crucial point. Is there commander-in-chief? Isn't there the, uh, I think it's the Speaker of the House, who, while not commander-in-chief, is, is, is supposed to sort of become the political lead in, the, in that situation. But what you're looking for there is who is actually in command of the uh, president when a democratic vote has actually said to the president, I'm afraid you're no longer president and we've got the votes to prove it. I think that's something which has to be settled within Washington and it can't be settled within NATO, can't be settled by an individual government like the United Kingdom. Reports this week are saying the UK government is unprepared for a Biden win. If true, how could that have happened? If it had happened, then it, it, is, it is quite remarkable because all the polls would tell us that it's, it's a close-run thing. I think that the United Kingdom is sitting there saying, right, this is what happens if Biden wins. This is what happens if Trump wins. And none of them is going to go far away from, uh, we've got two plans, that's the one we follow. It's going to be very interesting. This time next week, there will be much more to say. I wonder if we will know much more. We shall return to this in seven days. This is Zitrap. The Special Forces operation to secure an oil tanker in the English Channel at the weekend. It was, according to one report, textbook. Seven stowaways detained on the tanker off the Isle of Wight. Police asked for military assistance and the SBS were deployed from their nearby base at Poole. Dean Stott is a former member of the SBS. He says the speed with which the incident was resolved in less than 10 minutes is testament to their training. The guys trained day in, day out for these, these scenarios. Thankfully, geographically, you couldn't have got closer to, to their launch point. You know, you saw how reactive they were and how quickly they dominated the vessel. And I know they, they weren't armed, but you don't know that for sure. So these guys wouldn't have gone in thinking that. Larrick Grove is an international security analyst and naval historian. Earlier, he told me that while the Royal Navy and Royal Marines have been helping combat seaborne crime around Africa, this was a good deal closer to home. Yes, well, we had a, a similar incident in the 
in the Thames estuary in December 2018 when an Italian container ship had four stowaways on board and they began to get violent and the SBSPs then. It seems to be becoming something of a habit that in fact stowaways from West Africa think they can get to Europe on board a cargo ship or tanker in this case and the point comes when they perhaps want to swim ashore and therefore they have to exert some control over the crew and then it becomes a little like piracy because you know they're trying to control the ship they're certainly threatening to use force or actually using force against the, you know, against the crew. And therefore, the only alternative really is to use special forces and to, in fact, treat it as if it was, in fact, an act of piracy. There will be concern, won't there, for the authorities about the potential for others to try something similar? There are at least two points here. One is that... There is the potential here for something rather nastier. I mean, if it gets around that a small number of people, and remember the crew of this tanker was only 22, so seven people could in fact overwhelm them and take control of the ship. What if the ship was in fact, it wasn't in this case, carrying oil? Uh, What if the ship was carrying a container with something rather nasty inside it? So there is a potential for some kind of terrorist attack here. On the other hand, it demonstrates that if you do try and hijack a ship in British waters, we are fully prepared to deal with that kind of situation. I mean, helpful that this played out close to the Special Boat Service base at Poole in Dorset. But if this were to become more common, either on the scale of asylum-seeking or as a terrorist incident, as as you suggest, if it becomes more common, we can't surely be deploying special forces on a routine basis. Uh, No, although it it was interesting that they were able to deploy in the the Thames estuary in in December 18, pretty quickly and by helicopter. Helicopters give these people a certain amount of mobility. So in fact, so, so rather than having patrol boats chugging up and down, the best solution seems to be if there is an emergency, then these, these people can be quite literally flown in by helicopter and, and dropped. How do you think this incident is going to be seen, but also portrayed elsewhere in the world? I think it demonstrates that we do have effective counter-terrorism and counter-hijacking measures. I mean, it has been done very effectively. There's been, there's been no loss of life. The, uh, the potential hijackers have been, have been overwhelmed. And it seems to be, for once, the system working remarkably well. International security analyst Eric Grove. Christopher, as well as that drama off the Isle of Wight, we also had the uh, front page news of the deaths of a family of four, including two children, when a boat sank off the French coast. Is all this likely to revive calls for more regular military involvement in the channel? It puts it into a higher level, but more people have died, and that is a tragedy for that family and, and the extended family. But the point is, it's likely to revive calls for more regular military involvement. We can't have much more regular uh, military involvement than we've got at the moment. And also we've seen demonstrated by the SBS coming out of uh, pool. Well, let's turn to the topic that has dominated 2020, the pandemic. And like so many aspects of military life, it has impacted on recruitment for the brigade of Gurkhas, severely hampering it this year. It's normally a year-long process, which starts with a tour of some of Nepal's most remote regions, something that is 
hard to do during the pandemic. Well, Jade Calloway has been talking to Major Jack Miller, who's Officer Commanding British Gurkhas Pokhara and Deputy Recruiting Officer for Nepal. It's his job to oversee a very different recruitment process as the brigade has been trying to welcome its largest intake in more than 30 years. We've peaked in the amount of people that we are selecting, which was last year. And this year, we're aiming to bring forward 170 trainee riflemen from the east and 170 from the west coming through to the UK to begin their journey. And then subsequent years after this, the number of potential riflemen we'll bring forward will change and is likely to be reduced slightly. The COVID-19 pandemic has really hampered those usual plans because there's so much travel around the country involved. So what have you not been able to do? What have you had to adapt to in this year's look at recruitment? Everything? Everything, yeah. We have not been able to do anything. So the plan was to call forward everyone from central selection last year who passed but didn't quite make the cut. And then also we've called forward down to a certain quality line from regional selection. This will mean there'll be no new applicants for selection this year but the quality level of those potential recruits that we can call forward is exceptionally high. It must be hugely disappointing for those who were looking to apply this year from scratch. It's heartbreaking and we get emails every day from upset potential recruits who've maybe this was their last year because we have a strict age limit between the ages of 18 and 21 and they've maybe failed twice and this year maybe they'd be ready but we cannot change the age ranges because that would be unfair to those next year. And what's that like for you as the staff that are seeing these potential candidates and and having to make those tough calls about who makes the cut and who doesn't? You can't let your emotions really get in the way of what you're there to do. There is a pain and a sadness in those that are sent home There is also an immense joy in those that get in. The potential recruits that become trainee riflemen are ecstatic and it's hairs on the back of your neck stuff. It balances it out and we have a job to do and we're we're fortunate that we can pick the very best to come to the British Army. But that also means that Like in any selection, there will be those that don't quite make the cut. Major Jack Miller speaking to Jade Calloway. And Jade has a special five-part series on Gurkha recruitment on Totally Connected next week on BFBS. How do spies think? You might imagine they want to keep their thought processes under wraps. But some principles are not secrets, and a new book shares them as a way of improving your own decision-making. Now, this might sound like one of the thousands of self-help books out there until you know who's written it. A former senior defence official who became director of GCHQ, Sir David Omond. I started thinking about this book uh, after the Brexit referendum and then the 2016 US presidential uh, election. I felt I wanted to send out a call to arms in favour of more rational analysis and less half-truths, distortions fake news. We need to get back to being able to distill what we see uh, and read on social media and analyse it as to what is true and what is false. I mean, there's an 
element that this would almost be seen as, at the risk of insulting you, uh, a self-help book, uh, which is not something one, one would expect to find a, a former senior defence official or director of GCHQ to be writing. Well, in a way, it is a self-help book because the sort of techniques, the sort of approach which is taken by a defence analyst trying to put together a picture, those are applicable to everyday life as well. In its simplest terms, you're arguing for people to break from predefined views, to try and fill in the gaps in their information and then look ahead. Is that, is that it? Well, think of it this way. When you have any decision to take, what we have to do is, inside our own heads, hold together two different kinds of thinking. One is the cold, rational analysis but the other part is emotionally driven. What do you want to get out of the decision? What do you fear? And you hope the decision might help you avoid. How do we do that? How do we think like a spy? The first thing, if you're looking at the rational side of this, is let's break down the process of thinking into four easy steps. And this is what I call in the book my C's model, S-E-E-S. And the first S stands for situational awareness. Can you answer basic questions about what and where and when, when you look at a situation? But facts by themselves are capable of multiple interpretations. So you need to be able to explain what is going on. If you've got a good explanation, you can begin to produce an estimate of how things might unfold. The final S in C's, S-E-E-S, is what I call strategic notice. And that's watching out that whilst you were so preoccupied with this decision, you didn't get something come around the back and hit you on the head. I mean, you talk in the book about how all four parts of this model were not used effectively in the lead up to the Falklands War. The Falklands War was more of a policy failure than an intelligence failure. And in fact, I would argue that the uh, uh, GCHQ, my old department, saved the government from falling, saved Margaret Thatcher from being deposed uh, by her own backbenchers because uh, they provided several days' notice of the Argentine invasion. I was the person who showed those intercepts to Margaret Thatcher. So when on the Saturday morning in the House of Commons there was a tremendous row about the loss of the Falkland Islands, she was able to stand up and say, we are, as we speak, assembling a task force that we are going to send to the South Atlantic. And that, I think, saved the day. How could the SEAS model have, have made that different? The situational awareness part of it, what was going on, what was going on were negotiations over transfer of sovereignty. And those negotiations were not going on very well. But what we were failing to pick up was how they were perceiving the slowness of the negotiation. We had uh, made severe inroads in the size of the fleet in the previous year's defence review. And the Argentine government could only have drawn one conclusion from that which was the British government didn't really care that much. Now, that was a major mis misperception. And the modelling part of it comes in because of the time it would take to send reinforcements. 
And if, if they thought that through, the Joint Intelligence Committee at the time should have said, you can't rely on intelligence forewarning to send reinforcements. Now, it might have cost quite a lot of money to extend the runway to be able to take fast jets. But if we'd done that in advance, it would have saved something like three billion pounds and a thousand lives. So it's a classic example of where that interface between the analytical and the sort of political comes in. So David Omond on his new book, How Spies Think, 10 Lessons in Intelligence. Christopher, in World War II, we asked the public to rally together, to, to think as one. Do you think in this age of digital misinformation and disinformation, we can make that a plank of, of, of our strategy of defence? We have a habit in this country of, of finding a new plank and saying, right, that will solve the problem. And quite often, truthfully, it doesn't solve any problem at all. And also, you've got to have people who might make that call, who might see something, and they can put it into a very low-level group, a committee, if you like, uh, within their own organisation. And that will go straight to the CEO and he can make the final decision. Well, finally this week, the Speaker of the House of Commons, best known for keeping MPs in check, but the incumbent... Sir Lindsay Hoyle is also a keen supporter of the armed forces. For decades, he has campaigned to support military personnel and veterans. He's even been made an honorary colonel. Now he says MPs need to think carefully about the impact their political decisions can have on the front line. He's been speaking to our reporter, Laura Bacon Isherwood. Questions to the Prime Minister. Sir Lindsay Hoyle presides over parliamentary procedure day in, day out. But when it comes to defence matters, this speaker believes there is a way for MPs to get a real understanding of how politics affects personnel by taking a walk in their boots through the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme. I was a new MP back in 1997. I thought, I want to get some real experience. I want to get a real understanding of what our armed forces have to put up with. I went with the Royal Marines, I thought, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Not only did it give me a real insight, I think it was seven weeks. I went out to Norway with the Arctic training, went up below, beyond the Arctic circle, you know, to sleep in a tent at minus 30. I never thought I'd actually do that. Do you think all MPs should take part in that scheme? Because as you say, they are making decisions that will impact the lives of those people and then civilians beyond. Totally agree with you. Wherever you represent in this country, there are people from your constituency who have served or are serving in our armed forces. So the least we should do is get a real understanding of it. And I think part of that is the experience of the armed forces parliamentary scheme. You couldn't make it compulsory, but I'd certainly like to. Sir Lindsay's passion for the armed forces runs strong in his Chorley constituency. Over the decades, he's pushed for memorials to be built to remember the fallen and campaigned against a plan to sell off the building that had been the town's TA centre since the First World War. Work that resulted in Sir Lindsay being made honorary colonel of three medical regiment. I think they felt I could be a champion for them and they asked me to become the colonel of the squadron. So all the things they wanted, I could then ask about. So I think it was a twofold exercise. One, I was getting real pleasure out of this and real enjoyment. And, of course, the squadron were getting the kit that they felt they needed. From there, of course, uh, that, that was being moved on. And they said, look, we'd like you to take over as Omni Colonel of the regiment. And would you go to three regiment at Fulham Preston? 
And I said that will be an absolute delight and a pleasure. Sir Lindsay's respect for the breadth of skills the armed forces possess is clear. And he says the part they've played in the coronavirus response has been a great advertisement for their role in society. If we look back, I suppose, you know, we, we go back to the 70s and the 80s, there was a complete disconnect. And none more so because of the issues in Northern Ireland. Soldiers were not allowed to wear the uniform out of the barracks. People didn't recognise it. And there was a bit of, who are the armed forces? What are they? Are they just killing machines and nothing else? And I think what we have done, we really have changed that. And, you know, when, when I came into Parliament, um, and, I, and I look back, you know, we've got that horrendous issue of disease where we needed cattle to be put down. Without doubt, that foot and mouth was a complete tragedy for this country. But who came to the rescue to make things happen? It was the army. And they made the real difference. And, of course... It's those skills that you've begun to realise. These are hidden away from the public. Let's show these skills. And, of course, we moved on from there, didn't we? You know, the fact that we lifted the ban on actually people travelling in uniform. They could once again be seen at the Senator. They could be seen within their community. So that great advertisement was back out there to say to people, I serve my country. But I also serve my community. The Common Speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, speaking to Laura Macon Isherwood. Christopher, Sir Lindsay saying he's worried many MPs don't know enough about the military. It's, it's a warning we've heard before. Given that these people are making decisions that have a huge impact on the forces, do, do you think it's a, a new problem? Do you think it's a problem that's getting worse or better? No, I don't think it's worse or better. I think it's, it's, it's a problem which hasn't gone away. The majority of MPs uh, don't know enough when they get into the depths of the debate. We've got to think about this bit further. Perhaps the House of Commons Defence Select Committee, maybe that part of their job is to make sure that they brief MPs just before a debate who've got a particular interest that they're well briefed. Really interesting. Christopher, thank you as always. And thanks to all our guests this week. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you'll find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.